Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 7 to 13. Let's give our attentive hearing to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray before we dive into God's word. Our God, our maker, our redeemer, we thank you for calling us into your presence to hear your call to worship, to be reminded of what you have done for us through the hymns and the psalms, and to, to confess what we are honestly before you, to receive who you are truly for us. And at this time, we want to receive your daily bread to feed our souls with, um, to nourish our souls in a way that nothing in this world can feed us, um, and to be satisfied in a way that Nothing in this world can satisfy us. Would you um, open our mouths um, and feed us your word and, and nurture us, Lord, at this time? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're continuing in our uh, series in the book of Revelation, uh, landing on the sixth letter to the churches in Asia Minor, um, which is a letter addressed to the church in Philadelphia. And I hope by now you've noticed a certain pattern uh, if you've been following our series as you, as you read Jesus' letter to these churches. So far, uh, the church that was most attractive and reputable on the outside, Sardis, received the most devastating verdict right, from Jesus. You're dead, spiritually speaking. And then the church that was suffering the most and socially, materially, the most deprived, receive the most praise. And that's the church in Smyrna. What you will see in our letter uh, today addressed to the church in Philadelphia is the same pattern continuing. A church that is so weak on the outside and yet receives great praise uh, from Jesus. So there's something very counterintuitive about uh, the way we understand strength and weakness and the way scripture talks about strength and weakness. And it's counterintuitive to us because in a lot of ways our intuitions are shaped by our world. And so we, we think 
we do tend to think like the rest of the world. We appraise and value things like the rest of the world. We prioritize like the rest of the world. We don't like being weak. We don't want to be weak. Who wants to be weak? And in every area of life, we want to be just a little bit stronger. Right? We, just, we want to be just a little, a little richer, uh, just a little bit more stable and secure. We want our children to perform just a little better. Uh, we want our performance review to come back a little bit more positive than last year's. We want strength, even if it's a little by little. Uh, we don't like weakness. But the Bible seems to prioritize weakness over strength in, in, in a lot of the places in the Bible. And maybe more accurately, uh, it prioritizes a different kind of strength uh, than the kind of strength that uh, the world prioritizes. I mean, after all, Jesus is strong. And there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus is powerful. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not the same kind of strength, as we'll see, uh, that the world deems to be strong. Um, and spiritually speaking, we can be weak in one sense and strong in the other, and strong in one sense and weak in the other. We can be very strong to the world, but very weak before God's eyes. Um, we can be very weak in the eyes of the world and yet remain very strong in the eyes of God. How do we um, understand this? How do we make these distinctions? And I think our passage today helps us do that. Um, three things I want to highlight. Uh, the Christians in Philadelphia, they were, first, yeah, they were weak on the outside. Clearly, they were weak on the outside. Second, um, yet they had a love on the inside. Weak on the outside, love on the inside. And, and lastly, they, as a result of that love on the inside, they were able to show true strength from the inside out. Okay? Weak on the outside, love on the inside, true strength from the inside out. These would be our three points. Okay, point number one, how they were weak on the outside. Uh, it says in verse 8, they had very little power. Okay. I know that you have but little power. And the word power, there's the Greek word dynamis. It's where we get the word dynamic. Um, it can also mean ability. It can also mean ruler. It's a power that's overwhelming. It's controlling. It's ruling. Paul uses this word in 2 Corinthians when he says, we're being persecuted and being sentenced to death and have no dynamis left. We have no strength left. So power in that context meant not having any, any sort of sociopolitical sway or influence. The apostles had none. Right? They're just being persecuted left and right, and they say we have no dynamis. We have no power in this sense. And it's most likely used in the same way in, in this letter to the church in Philadelphia. And here's a little piece of historical context about the church in Philadelphia. Um, around AD 17, there was a devastating earthquake, uh, devastating enough to be recorded in history, uh, widespread damage. And what happened was the Caesar, Emperor Tiberius, he gave the citizens in Philadelphia basically the ancient version of disaster relief. So it's in the form of forgiveness of their annual tributes and subsidies and, and whatnot. Because remember, during this time, any financial uh, activity had to go through Rome anyway, had to go through Caesar anyway. Um, so in gratitude for this assistance coming from Caesar, the leaders of Philadelphia, basically the mayors and governors of their time, 
um, they renamed their city. And they vowed to build this new city called New Caesarea, Caesar's new city. Okay. And, and now, now this city will hopefully thrive as, as Rome thrives under, under their king and rescuer, their savior, right, Caesar. And what history shows after this is that the city never quite recovers fully from that devastating earthquake, but what happens is they remain dependent on Rome for their sustenance, for their continual livelihood. So um, the honoring of the emperor, the worship of Caesar continues, and as they continue doing that, right, uh, the politicians stay in office, the businesses stay in business. Okay. As long as you continue uh, to honor and worship the emperor. Now, uh, did Christians participate in that? And as we read in some of the other letters, some churches did participate in Caesar worship. They gave in. They, they went along, um, whether that's to maintain social influence, uh, may, uh, keep their jobs. We don't know exactly, but it's, we can imply. Um, they went along uh, to maintain stability and maintain security. They, they, were literally, they were literally saying, when in Rome, okay, and went along with Rome. They even brought some of that into the church, as we've seen. They were, there was idolatry in the church. There was sexual immorality in the church. Um, the, the food I offered to idols were, were being shared within the church. Um, a lot of people were, were giving in and going along with this. But right, not, not the Christians in Smyrna, as we have seen, and neither the, the Christians in Philadelphia. They didn't give in, meaning they, they resisted Caesar worship and all the, the sacrifices that you have to make at Caesar's temple and all that stuff. And, and with, along with that, you lose every form of dynamis, external power. Uh, so you lose, you lose your financial stability. You could lose your job. You could, uh, if, you're, if you are a politician, you would lose, you would lose that office. If you're not uh, a Caesar worshiper, right, you have no dynamis, you have no power. On top of this, uh, remember what we learned from the background of uh, Smyrna as well. Um, in the Greco-Roman world, how you know, remember Judaism was a state-recognized religion. Christianity was not. And so one way that early Christians enjoyed some measure early on, some measure of religious freedom was being identified as a sect within Judaism. And so they would worship with the Jews in the synagogues. And so they would be somewhat, somewhat protected that way. Well, um, over time, what happened to Jesus happened to the Christians. Uh, they got kicked out of the synagogues over time. Uh, the apostles were kicked out of synagogues. And, and when, when they returned to the synagogues, it was for the intention of evangelizing to them and not, not so to uh, worship Christ with them because they don't recognize Christ as the risen, risen Son of God, as Yahweh, but a rabbi, a rabbi who's passed away. So over time, uh, Christians uh, during this time, even those who are ethnically Jews, were being sort of exposed or outed as non-Jews. Right? They're not a part of us. They don't worship our God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were essentially excommunicated from the synagogues and and we see this kind of tension in verse 9. Uh, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Okay, the same language is used here as that uh, in that letter to the church in Smyrna. This language of synagogue of Satan was to refer to the, 
the Jews who slandered, falsely accused the church and persecuted them and basically uh, accused them of being a cult, not part of Judaism, not a people of God. And Jesus is saying, actually, uh, they're not a synagogue of God, a synagogue of Satan, and, and they're not truly Jews, truly the people of God, but you are the churches. But even with that, with that recognition from God in, in their socio-political way of life, religious way of life, the Christians in Philadelphia had no power, no power whatsoever. Because um, the, the only way they could have had any power was if they abandoned part of their faith and, or seriously compromised their faith. Their faith that says, only Christ is Lord. Only he is king. And so we don't worship Caesar, uh, we don't bow at his temple, um, we don't swear allegiance to him. So Christians in Philadelphia were of the weakest, the poorest, the most helpless, the most politically insignificant, and the most unattractive people in that city. Christians. The most pathetic of the people in Philadelphia were known as Christians. And for one reason only, Christ is their Lord. Okay. Now, we need to take a moment and, on the one hand, admire that. On the other hand, apply this to ourselves as well um, and, and examine whether there's a similar pattern of being given into, given into a foreign dynamis power uh, in our own lives today. We don't have a Caesar per se, right? There's no... There's no temple for the president down the street or something like that. But we do have things in our culture that rule over us, don't we? Uh, we do have things that have this overwhelming power overtaking us in our, in our lives, don't we? Um, and if you don't have those things, if you don't, if you don't give in to those powers, you are identified as weak. In, in your culture. You are identified as unattractive. You're, you're identified as a loser. Um, here, maybe, maybe just to be a bit more specific, could, could, for example, materialism rule over us like Caesar ruled over people in Philadelphia? Sure, right? If, if, you, don't, if you don't give in to materialism, right, your life won't look attractive. Uh, you, your life will look miserable. Um, if you don't surround yourself enough, clothe yourself enough with enough nice things, um, you appear weak uh, to the world. So what do you do? You go to the temple. You go to the mall. And you, you offer your sacrifices there. And then you grab some items that clothe you with this righteousness that helps you keep your head up high when you walk down the street. Um, is that a stretch? Maybe, but maybe not. Um, are, are, are people hooked on it? Are, can people be controlled, overwhelmingly, be addicted to money and materialism? Absolutely. And that grip could be just as strong, if not stronger, than the grip that Caesar had on, on the citizens in Philadelphia. Um, point is, Caesar worship may look different today, and there might not be a physical temple that you go to today, 
But we do live under the same pressure that comes from the world that says if you don't give in to this social pressure, this cultural pressure, or political pressure, or relational pressure, um, you are weak, uh, and and you are not acceptable by our societal standards. We feel the pressure of that dynamis uh, in our in our lives, don't we? And, and Jesus is speaking to that. And and the comfort here is also if you if you feel that pressure, right? That's that's a healthy sign. It it, it means that uh, there's some resistance. Whereas if you if you feel absolutely no pressure whatsoever coming from the world and, and life is just smooth sailing, then then we have to pay extra attention to right the the other letters written to the church in Pergamum um, and and the church in Sardis where yeah things were just smooth sailing on the outside. And Jesus says, there's something terribly wrong on the inside. Uh, Jesus is speaking to those and, and comforting those who, who are feeling this, this pressure. And he's saying to them in verse 8, I know your works, meaning I know your faithfulness. I, know your, I see your genuine faith. I see your struggling. I see your, I see your suffering. I see that you are in battle, in other words, uh, in this world. You're not going along to get along, and you are remaining weak in the world while you remain uh, strong in Christ. That's the praise. And this leads us to the second point. What made them strong in Christ? They had the love of Christ. They were weak on the outside, but what they had on the inside was the love of Christ, and that's what, that's what kept them strong in the, in the healthiest sense of the word strong. Uh, verse 9, Jesus says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. I have loved you. Uh, who is them here uh, who will come and bow down before the church? Uh, the Jews who are saying, you're not God's people. You have no place in our synagogue. You have no status. You cannot enter in. Jesus says that he will bring them to their knees, make them powerless, right? That's the position of uh, bowing down before who? Before the church. And they will see that God has loved them. God has loved the church. Um, and the significance here is not just that God has loved them, but that God has loved them. That's the significance of, of this, this verse. It's who is loving them that makes it so important. Um, in verse 7, Jesus identifies himself as the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. And that's a very direct allusion back to the Holy One of Israel found in the book of Isaiah. Repeatedly, God identifies himself in the book of Isaiah as the Holy One of Israel. And the, the reason why that was important for the Israelites was because as they were uh, despised and attacked by foreign nations and kings, they knew as long as God, as long as Yahweh identifies himself as the Holy One of Israel, they have hope. They won't be destroyed. So in Isaiah 49, verse 7, for example, it says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. To them, God says, Kings shall see and arise princes and they shall prostrate themselves come and bow down before you 
because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Jesus is echoing these very same words and the same promises to the church, saying, I am this Holy One of Israel who have chosen his people, his spiritual bride, and that's you, the church. The Holy One of Israel has loved you. And if the Holy One of Israel says you are beloved, then that is what you are, beloved. No matter what the world says about you, you are beloved. If the Holy One of Israel says you are beloved. That's what he means when he says he has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And this is a direct quote from Isaiah 22. Chapter 22, verse 22, almost word for word. It's a reference to God having the authority to bring his chosen people, his bride, into his city, his home, his kingdom. And that authority does not rest with Israel's neighboring countries who attack them and take them captive and send them into exile. They don't have control. God has control. God has ultimate dynamis. He has the ultimate power. And what he declares to be so will be so forever. And therefore, he says, nothing will keep you out of my city, out of my care. So it is with all the power and authority there is in Yahweh himself, the Lord God, the Almighty, he says to this very weak and helpless, suffering Christians in Philadelphia who look very pathetic to the world, he says, I have loved you as my bride. I'm going to bring you into my city, and no one is able to keep you out of it. Put your hope in this, and don't forget this. And, and we, as we hear this, we have to understand, Jesus is speaking these very same promises that he gave to Israel, the Israelites in Isaiah to the church in Philadelphia. And as he says in verse 13, to all the churches, to you and me. It means if you are baptized into Christ, you are a part of the Israel of God. The promises given to Israel are now yours in Christ. Gentiles, us, who are not by birth Israel, not by ethnicity, right, Jews, can be counted as true, eternal Israel of God. Because Jesus is the one who holds the key to the city of David. And he says, I, I'm going to leave the door wide open for you, the church. And it says in Romans chapter 2, those who are Jews truly are not those who are Jews outwardly, but inwardly, meaning not on the basis of their ethnicity, but on the basis of their faith in Jesus Christ, the true Israel, the true offspring of Abraham. If you are united with him, you are inwardly a Jew, and that's what matters. Being outwardly a Jew, Jesus said time and time again to the Pharisees, it doesn't matter. God can raise up children of Abraham out of these rocks, he said. It doesn't matter that you are ethnically, nationally, or by passport a Jew. Do you have the love of Christ in you? 
is your faith in him. That's what makes you a true Israelite. Remember the question that Jesus asked Peter after Peter's denial of Jesus and and then Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection and Jesus comes back to Peter. Jesus' question to Peter was not, Peter, are you still a Jew? His question to Peter was, Peter, do you still love me? Do you still love me? That's what makes you an Israelite, a people of God from the inside and not just the outside. And so in a very um, ironic way, Jesus here brings back this prophecy that's found in Isaiah 60 where it says that one day Gentiles, those who are not people of God, will bow their knees before Israel and recognize Israel as God's true people. What Jesus does here is he reverses that expectation. There's a twist to the story. Turns out there are Jews who are actually those Gentiles in Isaiah 60, and there are Gentiles who are actually Israelites in Isaiah 60. Now the Jews who persecute the church, Jesus says, will bow their knees before the church and identify the church, Gentiles, as the true Israel of God. Those who are truly loved by God, who will be wedded to God forever. In verse 12, it says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Right? You don't just, you're not just on the out, outer courts where the Gentiles were, you're, you're, and you're not even on inside the, inside the temple itself. You are the temple. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That's how united you will be with God. That's how secure you will be in his presence. Uh, some people have interpreted this to mean that Jesus is talking about how Christians will one day in the future be invited into a physical temple that's rebuilt in physical Jerusalem, the one that's on our map today. This just means that one day Christians will be invited into the city of Jerusalem and worship with the Jews along with alongside them. That's what this means. But you have to really depart from this text to get to that interpretation. This is moving in the opposite direction of the external and the physical. Uh, again, in verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That means the temple of God is no longer a physical building, but a people. It's a people. And God is rebuilt. <laughs> he has rebuilt his temple. It's not made of stones, but living stones, according to Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are the temple of God? And the Holy Spirit lives inside you. Hebrews says that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, offered up himself on the cross as the once and for all sacrifice. Once and for all. And he is the high priest who, who completes the priesthood. And there are no more priests necessary. And as we enter into him by faith, we enter through a curtain that's torn in two, Hebrews chapter 10. The claim that God will then stitch back that curtain, rebuild the temple, reinstitute animal sacrifices, when he said 
This is a once and for all sacrifice. Christ is our greatest and final high priest to then reinstitute animal sacrifices, to, to stitch the, the curtain back up, and then bring back the Levitical priesthood and restore temple worship is not biblical. It's not biblical. To worship Christ, to worship God, all you need is faith in him because he's, he's bringing everything. He is the offering. He is the priest. His cross is the altar. He is all that we need. To say we need anything else is to nullify what he's done for us. This is the degree to which Christ has loved his church. He, is done, he has done everything necessary. He's finished all the work that's necessary to bring her home to himself. When we worship, therefore, even here, when we worship, we have to understand we can only worship properly if we worship in his name, in the name of Christ, and, and relying on his offering that was given on our behalf, and not bringing to God, Lord, here's my week of obedience. Here's my streak of as sinlessness. Here's my, here's my tithe. The only offering that God would find truly acceptable is Christ. And so we come in his name offering Christ up as our offering. And it's Christ leading us in our worship. And therefore, uh, you know, whenever, whenever you may feel like, um, and as I have felt, uh, you know, I don't feel like I'm quite in the right place with God. Um, and maybe I'll come back to church or I'll go back to church um, when, I'm, when I'm kind of putting my life back together some more. Well, notice what you're doing there is you're, you're bringing yourself as an offering. When the whole point is to, to bring Christ or him bringing you in his name, offering up himself on your behalf. That's our way to worship. And the city of God, therefore, is not a physical city. It says here in verse 12, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. This is not the Jerusalem that's on our map. This is a new Jerusalem, not on earth, but something that comes out of heaven down to earth. This is the new city promised in Revelation chapter 21, the new heaven and the new earth, the city where the God will bring down, bring down and consummate New heavens and new earth. This is where God will rule perfectly and finally with his people, where sin and death are no more, where, where our striving and our groaning stops, everything is made new, and we will live together forever as neighbors, as friends in, in a perfect city, in a perfect neighborhood. And our Mr. Rogers will be Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's our home. That's our true promised land. And it's critical for us to understand this because when we miss this, here's what will happen. We will put all of our strength, dynamis, into building that physical city here on earth like they did back in the Tower of Babel and like, like the Israelites are doing today. This city comes down out of heaven. It's not raised bottom-up. The Christian hope is what will come down out of heaven 
and consummate the earth. And that should free you and free me from securing a perfect city, a perfect life, a perfect identity for ourselves through our strength, through our work. And this is the, this is the practical point. Um, when you receive from Christ all that he's worked for you, it frees you to be weak. It frees you from having to be the workaholic, the perfectionist, the people pleaser who's fighting for an identity. When you find your identity in the one who's fought for you, who's laid it all down for you, who says, I have loved you from the very start. I'm bringing you into my city. And there's nothing you can do that will even come close to what I'm bringing you in the end. That's the only thing, the only thing that will free us from our captivity to the externals, the dynamis out there. It's hearing him say to us, I have loved you, and that's all you need. I have loved you, and you don't need anything else besides you to define you, outside of you to give you meaning, to give you value and worth. It's him saying, I have loved you. Uh, if you haven't seen the documentary, you know, speaking of Mr. Rogers, uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor? I, I would recommend it to you. Just for this one scene alone, I think it's, it would be worth it. Uh, in, there's a scene where they show, in one of his older episodes, Mr. Rogers brings out as his guest a kid, a 10-year-old kid, Jeff Erlanger, uh, who was 10, year old, 10 years old at the time, and also uh, a quadriplegic who's in a wheelchair. And all that they do is they, they, they have him come out, and Mr. Rogers greets him, right, welcomes him to his neighbor, and then he, Mr. Rogers starts singing this song. Can I sing a song for you? And he starts singing a song for him, and the song is titled, It's You I Like. And when he started to sing this song to that 10-year-old kid, I lost it. So if you want to watch this, just make sure you have, like, tissue nearby. The lyrics to the song goes like this. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you I like. The way you are right now. The way down deep inside you. Not the things that hide you. Not your toys. They're just beside you. But it's you I like. And the, and the image of that kid hearing Mr. Rogers sing that to him with this just humongous smile on his face, that still stays with me. And, and he sings along as well at the end. That image of this child so weak and so loved at the same time that made me actually envy something about that, covet that uh, to some extent. So weak. And, and so loved. And then, and then there's the contrast to maybe another movie I, I enjoyed, and that is um, uh, The Avengers um, Endgame, where you have the most powerful, the most powerful character right, in all of Marvel Universe, at least so far, and the most unloved. The most powerful, right? Thanos, um, and yet the most unloved. What do you prefer? What would you choose? To be weak and loved, 
powerful and unloved. The scripture says, we were weak and we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet Christ loved us. And, and he comes to us and he sings a love song. He says, it's you I want. It's you I chose. It's you I'm going to bring home. And, and that doesn't mean he's going to leave us the way that we are. He will make us what we were truly meant to be. He will make even this boy walk again. He will make us walk again. He will make us truly live again. He'll give us freedom. He'll give us rest. So we will no longer live in the captivity of things that promise us identity and security when actually they just enslave us and addict us. And here's the, here's the, here's the really important thing about this, guys, is um, you have to understand to, to love Jesus or to, to believe in Jesus or to put your faith in Jesus means nothing less than recognizing Jesus as your liberator and therefore your, your king. Uh, you, cannot, you cannot invite Jesus into your life to give you a little break as you serve different gods, the god of uh, materialism, uh, the god of consumerism. Uh, the God of pleasure, uh, the God of uh, a positive self-image, whatever it is. You cannot pursue all these things and then just come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm tired. Give me a little, give me a little boost so I'll get back to that. <laughs> to, to receive Jesus is to say, free me from that completely so that you doing all that is necessary to, to save me and bring me into your kingdom would be enough for me. To hear you say, I, I've chosen you and I love you would be enough for me. Um, in other words, Jesus doesn't offer you a vacation from your idols. He's offering you freedom from your idols. Uh, you, know who offered, <laughs> you know who offered God's people a vacation? Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to the Israelites, you can go, worship your God, but come back. But you have to come back, back to this slavery, back to this captivity. Go worship, do your thing. I don't care, do your church, worship, whatever. Come back and live as a slave. That's not God's goal, to give you a little vacation from serving idols, but to free you, completely free you from your idols, the things that enslave you and take you captive. And in this, we find what, what the Bible or what the gospel means by true power, the power of God. Um, I mentioned Thanos, and that's a fantasy character, but yeah, in, in the spiritual realm, the devil is the character who has power and no love. Um, and earlier I said Jesus is powerful, so how, how is he different? Well, Jesus is full of power and full of love. Jesus like the song says, our brother, strong, and kind, right? And the power is expressed most through his love. It, it's the power that frees us, the power that helps us overcome the things that addict us and enslave us, the power that makes us turn to him and say he is enough. That's, that's power. And that's the power that's found in the love of Christ, our brother, uh, strong and kind, who who did it all, all that's necessary to bring us into his kingdom. And if we 
if we see him for who he is and receive him for who he is, then we will begin to show true strength from the inside out. Okay, If this love is inside us, we'll show true strength from the inside out. What is true strength? Verse 10 puts it very simply. You have kept my word and word about patient endurance. Uh, there are two things here I want to highlight, word and patient endurance. Um, I think you get a very succinct summary of what scriptures mean by strength in the Christian life right here. Um, patient endurance and holding on to the word. Um, think about your just your horizontal sort of human relationships for a moment. How do you evaluate the strength of that relationship? How do you evaluate the strength of a friendship? How would you evaluate the strength of a, a marriage? Would it be um, how rich you get through that friendship? Would it be how attractive you become through that marriage? Or would it be how patiently you endure with that person through ups and down and make it to the end? Uh, the relationships that are sort of right defined by money and, and physical attractiveness, aren't, aren't those a relationship we might consider to be shallow? And, and have we not seen a good number of very attractive, rich couples who don't make it? Is that what we're after here? I think, I think Jesus is being very commonsensical when he says, you know, what, how you hold fast to me is by holding on to my word or my covenant or my promise and patiently enduring in that. Patiently enduring in that. Um, you know, when I was younger and dating, um, I thought it was significant to um, mark these anniversaries, and I thought it was significant what I wrote in the Valentine's Day card, and you know, and share that. Um, but I re I began to realize as time went by, the more I said. In a way, there was this weird uh, growth in my insecurity because the, the things I was saying, right, it wasn't really this promise of a permanence, but it was more about how I want to get to that place of promising permanence. It, it was, there's something, something fell short about uh, words in a, in a dating relationship. And maybe that's what expedited us and Lynn and I in, in, in got us married sooner. And then I thought, okay, the real, the real word I'm going to give to this person is at the altar where I say, I do. That's the, that's the real significant vow that I'm going to make. This is what's going to matter the most. But then year two came along, year three of our marriage came along, and year five, and recently we celebrated year 10. What, what I'm beginning to realize as I look back is, yes, there is value in that initial I do and marking your one year and two year. But it could be just as significant, if not more significant, to simply mark the fact that you are continuing in that vow and that word that you gave to the other person. Meaning what you're celebrating is not so much what we said that day, but we're patiently enduring in what we said that day. Um, and that's what makes people who have these 20th anniversary or 30th anniversary or 40th anniversaries, my heroes, because they have patiently endured 
right? They have patiently endured, and that's, that's really worth celebrating. Um, I think that's what the scriptures mean by, by strength. Um, you can look at a very frail old couple who look very weak on the outside. But as they celebrate their 50th anniversary, wow, what a strength. What patient endurance, right? And that's something the world might not see. That's, that's not, I don't know if that's Instagram friendly, right? But that's what God wants for us. Uh, the love that's on the inside that produces patient endurance. The question is still before us today, right? Jesus' question to you is not, will you be strong for me? The Jesus' question for you is not, uh, will you do a lot at church for me? Uh, the question is not, will you lay your life down and go on missions for me? The question is, do you love me? Presently, do you love me? Uh, not, did you love me when you professed love for me at that youth retreat? No. Um, and you had that powerful experience. Do you love me still today? Okay. And, and in this, we, we hold on to first his word, his vow to us. Right? Think of all that he's done first to love you. He's done to, to show you how he's chosen you as his and, and drawn near to you even when you were dead in your sins, dead in our sins. He drew, drew near to us and reaffirmed his love for you first and affirm your vow to him. Right? Receive his word, hold on to that word, endure in that word and affirm your vow back to him. Right? Patiently endure through, through seasons, especially seasons of weakness, seasons of where, where you feel like the outward things are falling apart, right? whether it's material or financial or political, things are falling apart. Hold on to, to this, the love you have on the inside that God has deposited into you and reaffirm your love back to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we ask that uh, you would help us imitate the, the saints in Philadelphia and that uh, we would value what looks weak on the outside and what to you looks so strong on the inside and value most of all where, where that strength was most evident for us and that is your cross um, where your son was at his weakest and also at his strongest to save us. Help us to value that. Help us to value him. and Let our church represent that value. And Lord, if we have chased after the externals, the things beside us uh, that cannot define us, cannot secure us, we pray you free us from that. And help us turn to our true King, our true Savior, Jesus Christ, and uh, receive his love and affirm our love back to him. And in this way, Lord, may we, may we receive the, the, the crown at the end of our race. And may we celebrate. Celebrate not just the profession we made a long time ago, but the profession that we will make. 
at the end and say, Lord, you know that I love you. Help us say those words. Help us believe uh, in your words to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.